Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. We live in a world where we face real dangers, and there's also lots of imagined things that get blown up in in our mind that may not be so real, but there are actual threats to our well-being that we encounter from time to time. I, if I could categorize these maybe in three categories, I would say there's, there's potential dangers, and I would say car accidents fall into that. Probably most of us drove here this morning, drove ourselves here, and there's always the potential when you get into a car that there could be an accident on the way. Like, no matter how careful you are as a driver, you don't know what's going to be happening on, on the other side of, of the, the lane there, right? So car accidents are potential. Fortunately, statistically, that's, it's pretty rare, but we know that it's a potential. In, in our society, we have decided that the benefits of being able to drive a car and get to places outweigh the risks that, that are real. So that's a potential danger that we run into. Then there are sometimes immediate dangers that happen, um, that come into our lives. Our family experienced this about 15 years ago now. We were living in Texas. I was pastoring down there. And one day, Sherry called me while I was at work, and she said, there is a high-speed chase going on through our neighborhood and this, this person is trying to get away from the police by running into people's yards. And so it turned out that they actually ran into our yard. And so these are pictures from, from our yard. And everybody in Texas has a privacy fence in their backyard. This guy had a cattle guard on the front of his truck, and he was just taking out the fences. And he was just going to try to get away from the police. And I told Sherry when she called us, like, I would I'd take the kids upstairs, go lock yourselves in a room, because if this guy actually like crashes and then he's like seeking shelter. He may have a gun. We, we don't know what, what all is going on. So this was like really real in that moment. Fortunately, none of that happened. And fortunately, he didn't run into our house or anything else. It's amazing uh, that he was able to navigate all of that. But so that's, that's rare. But when something like that happens, there's sometimes immediate danger, immediate threat that we face. And then there's personal threats. Like, that was impersonal. I mean, this, this guy was not, you know, singling us out because he knew who we were. He was just trying to get away from, from the police. But there are personal threats that we sometimes face in, in the, the guise of someone that you know who's constantly criticizing you or you know that they just do not have your well-being on, on their minds. There, there are all of these kinds of dangers and threats that we face. And so here's the question for us this morning. When you face a danger, a threat of of whatever variety, what is your response to that? Do you you fall apart emotionally? Do you freeze up? 
I mean, some of us may be in kind of a perpetual state of frozenness, and we're missing out on life just because of the anxiety over the dangers and the threats that, that we face. Wouldn't it be nice if we could face real dangers, real threats in our lives with, with a confidence and a peace that when they come into our life, we know we're going to be okay. Things are, I don't have to get uptight about this. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome? We're, we're going to learn how to do that this morning, and I will give you a hint before we see how that's done. That confidence does not come from inside of you. It is actually born of faith. And we're going to see an example of that this morning. If you would take a Bible and turn with me to 1 Samuel 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, so I'm, uh, there's one near you. It's on page 272. We're, we're continuing in this series, beloved. And uh, the last couple of weeks, you've gotten the chance to hear from some other anointed voices. And so I'm very, very appreciative of that. And I was very appreciative of some time off. And, and it was very refreshing. So thank you for that. Last week, if you were here, you heard from Wes Weber, who is Sophie Aller's dad, our, our children's ministry director. Wes talked to us about David being at a low point in his life. And I, I appreciated the fact that Wes brought out the fact that Pretty much any, any person you see in Scripture, aside from Jesus, is going to have highs and lows. And so they're just they're real people like you and me. This is one of the things that gives me confidence that the Bible is, is actually true, that it's actually historical. Because usually if you're making stuff up, you, you're wanting to just highlight the positives, like, like we do on social media. So the Bible actually shows us the highs and the, the lows. And last week, we saw David at a low. We saw David fall apart in the face of danger that he was facing. We, we saw him lying. We saw him acting like he was crazy to try to protect himself. So, so last week, we saw David cave under pressure. Today, we're going to see David in a cave under pressure, but his response is a little bit Different. It's a lot different. Actually, let's start at the beginning of 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Adullam actually means refuge. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David is on the run. He is in a cave, not by his choice. He is running for his life from Saul. If, if we could compare some of our experience to being in a cave, it might be like going camping. People who camp are a, a little bit crazy. I mean, why? Why would you go out and leave air conditioning and, and stuff? I don't, I don't know. But David is not doing this by choice, and he has no running water, no electricity. He's, he's running for, for his life. It's probably not what he was picturing that day when he got anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. He was not picturing this, this kind of running for his life. But he's in a cave, and people are joining him. First, his family. We see in verse 1, when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Here's what that means. We know that at least three of David's brothers 
were soldiers in Saul's army. They are now defecting, and they're, they're coming to, to him. And along with hundreds of other men. So in verse 2, we see uh, these three descriptors of this group of guys that are coming. Everyone who's in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. You may have a footnote in, in your Bible that says, or discontented. So uh, actually, the, the Hebrew, the literal Hebrew is bitter in soul, but uh, pastors like alliteration, so it's kind of fun that there's debt and uh, distress and dis, uh, discontented. Now, when you hear those words, it, it, that sounds like kind of a motley crew, right? I mean, I'm, if I'm David, I might see all these people coming to me being like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Why, why are you coming? But actually, if we pull these apart and look a little bit more closely, it's, it's not quite as motley as we might expect. That, that first group that says everyone who is in distress, that, that Hebrew word is used when God tells his people that if you disobey me, I'm going to send armies from other nations to come and bring siege to your cities, and you will be in distress. And, and this gets a little graphic, so, so sorry, but just to flesh out what distress looks like, because these cities are in distress, and they're surrounded, and they can't get the food that they need, people will be so in distress, they will eat their own children. Okay, that's what's behind this word distress. So there's heavy external pressure on these people. So some of these men who come, maybe they're feeling pressure from military enemies. Maybe it's just the pressure of life in the, the situation that they find themselves in where Saul is, this is Saul versus David, and they're watching all of this play out. They're in distress. The second group of people are those who are in debt, this Hebrew word has to do with people who are being taken advantage of. Okay, it's, it's, in our day, we would talk about loan sharks who are taking advantage of people. And you should know that the, the Jewish law, there, there's a law against loaning to people at interest. And so if you had a fellow countryman who found themselves in a situation where they had to borrow money, you were to loan that to them out of the kindness of your heart as a way of boosting them up and encouraging them not to take advantage of them. Clearly, that was not being enforced here. And so there were some people who were deeply in debt, being taken advantage of, and they were so frustrated by that that they're running away and they're running to David. The third phrase here, bitter in soul or discontent, I would suggest that that's just, they're, they're discontented, they're, they're bitter about what they see going on around them in, in their country. All of these suggest reactions to the poor leadership of Saul as king. I mean, if you think about the fact, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, Saul is so preoccupied with trying to get rid of David, he doesn't have any energy left over to govern his country. And so these men are seeing that, and they're saying, we're going to leave Saul, we're, we're giving up on him, because he's a lost cause, and we're going to go to David because we think maybe we have a better chance of following someone who is a decent leader. And so this isn't as motley a crew as it appears at first. In fact, we see later in Scripture that out of this group of soldiers that come 
to be with David, there's going to be mighty men that get uh, recognized, mighty men who do amazing exploits out of loyalty to David and in serving, serving the Lord. So there's a large group of people, 400 men who are now with David. It's going to be hard to keep this group secret from Saul for very long. But before we get to that, let's see how David provides for his parents. Verse 3. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. David's parents are probably pretty elderly by now. If you remember, he is the youngest of eight and now he's an adult, and so they're, they're probably getting up there in age, and he wants to provide for their protection. There's now a, an, a, a target on their back because of the target on David's back, and they're in danger. So he goes to the king of Moab. Why Moab, you might wonder? Moab was a, an enemy country of Israel. Well, if you know David's genealogy, you know that he had a great-grandmother who was a very special lady named Ruth. And she was from Moab. So he has a connection there. And I also have to wonder if by now, word is not starting to get around that David has been anointed to the next king, to be the next king, so that he might have an audience with this king of Moab. Also, I'm sure that word is getting around that Paul, Saul, is pretty unstable at this point. So now the scene shifts to Saul, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. I'll pause there just for a second because I, I said a few weeks ago when Saul hurled his spear at David, like what is the deal with him like sitting around with his spear like he's always watching for somebody to, to throw a spear at. Someone pointed out to me, and I appreciate this, this insight, that probably him holding his spear was a symbolic kind of posture for him as king. Like this is when he's kind of holding court. So he's here under the tree. He probably also is watching for somebody they can throw it at because he seems to, to do that a lot. But Saul sitting under the tree with his spear in his hand, verse 7, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, here now people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that, you all, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. All right, so you can hear the insecurity, the paranoia, this idea that there's a conspiracy against him. It's true that there is a covenant between David and Jonathan. Jeremy talked about that a few weeks ago, but it wasn't about trying to take Saul out. It was about being loyal to each other. And so you can see this, this paranoia. It's no wonder that, that good men are leaving him because who wants to serve someone like Saul? Well, the answer to that question is someone like Saul because we see that in verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, 
to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So Doeg feeds Saul's paranoia and his, this conspiracy theory that he has. He doesn't mention the fact that Ahimelech was very hesitant. If you remember that from, from last week, when Ahimelech sees David coming by himself, he's very hesitant, very nervous. What is this all about? So there, there was no conspiracy going on here, but Doeg is painting a picture because he wants to secure a good place on Saul's good side. Doeg uh, was introduced really briefly last week in chapter 21, verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he's the chief, he's the chief shepherd for Saul. He's been promoted to that position. And then when we see him in chapter 22, it says in verse 9 that he stood by the servants of Saul. That's a position of authority. So Saul has elevated him, he's promoted someone who is not a good guy, and we're about to see how evil he really is. And if this was a TV show that we were producing here, we would say, warning, there's disturbing content coming up because this this gets really ugly. Verse 11, then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub, And he answered, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? He can't even say his name. He always calls him the son of Jesse. In that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let, Let not the king impute anything to his servant, talking about himself, or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Saul, there's no, there's no conspiracy here. I, what, whatever you are talking about, whatever you dreamed up in your mind, I don't know anything about that. And he starts out actually just talking about the loyalty of, of David. It's interesting. Jonathan talks about the loyalty of David to his father. Michael, Saul's daughter, protects him, works to protect him. And Ahimelech, you have to admire him in his calmness in responding to this. I mean, he's coming to stand before the king being confronted. He has to know that things are are not looking good, but he's just calm and he's just telling, telling the truth. So he's making a reasonable appeal. Earlier, you may remember, there was an there was a reasonable appeal from Jonathan to his father, and that that worked for a short period of time, but Saul is beyond reasoning with. At this point, verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Good for them. But then the the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, 
And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. But he didn't stop there. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. Horrific, horrific scene. The dictionary definition of massacre is an unnecessary, indiscriminate killing of a large number of people or animals. And here we actually have him killing both. If we think about the fact that there are 85 priests, and probably we can assume that most of them, if not all of them, were married, and most families would have had about two kids. Conservatively, we can estimate this was 350 people or more that are being massacred, that are being killed. And, and not only that, but these are priests who serve the Lord. I mean, this is, a, this is a terrible, horrific situation. This is actually a partial fulfillment of a prophecy that was made earlier in the book of 1 Samuel against the house of Levi. Le, I'm sorry, Eli. Um, Eli was a priest who was disobedient to the Lord, and the Lord said, I'm, I'm going to cut off your line, and your, your, um, your descendants will not be able to serve any longer. This is a partial fulfillment of that, but in a horrific, terrible way. And so far, um, what we've read here kind of sounds like the news that we watch every day. And you're thinking by now, you started off this message saying there's going to be some hope, there's going to be some instruction about how to handle danger, right? So where is that hope? Well, it comes now, finally, at the end of this chapter in verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Now pause there. Okay, don't, don't keep reading. Okay, before we see David's response, I want you to put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. Okay, he recognizes that he's responsible I mean, first of all, he was concerned for his parents. He was concerned to take care of them because he knew that because of him, they were in danger. Now, he knows he's responsible for this massacre of this whole town. They were killed because of their association with him. What a heavy, incredible responsibility. How would you respond in the face of that danger and that kind of threat? Would you fall apart emotionally? Would you freeze up, not knowing what to do? David doesn't do either of those this, this time. Let's read his response in verse 23. David says to this priest who has escaped, Stay with me, do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Wow. Wow. What a, what a statement of faith. I mean, what that means is he is so convinced that he is safe under God's keeping. He's like, you just stay close to me, and you're going you're gonna to be okay. I mean, that is, that's amazing. And the question is, where does David get this confidence? I mean, his situation has not changed. 
I mean, he's still on the run. There's no news that, that Saul is, is off the hunt. Nobody has spoken anything positive to him. He just told them that all of these people were, were killed. And he, the threat that he, David is facing is it's not random. It's not possible or potential. It is real. It's immediate. It's, it's personal. So how, where does he find this confidence? Well, we find the answer, as we often are doing in this series, in one of the Psalms. So if you would turn for the rest of the message to Psalm 52, we get this insight into David's heart and, and his mind. And the byline of, of this Psalm ties it right to the scene that we looked at here today. I'll just read the byline first. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. And there it is. There is the source of David's confidence. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. The steady Love of God gives us confidence in the face of danger. That's what gives us confidence, is the steady love of God. David's not in denial about the threat. Um, the first part of verse 1, he, he says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? What, what has happened here is evil. Even the pursuit on his own life is, is evil. He's calling a spade a spade, but far greater than evil is the, the love of God. Verse 1, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. In Psalm 52, we, we see two responses from, from David, two things that David does in the face of a threat. First, he entrusts the evildoer to God's judgment. That's what we see as we read through verse 7. Verse 2, he, he says, your tongue plots destruction. He's thinking of Doeg here. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. David is convinced that God will bring judgment on the evildoer. And so David leaves it in God's hands. Notice that David doesn't take matters into his own hands. He could have gone after Doeg and, and tried to hunt him down and take revenge himself, but he, he didn't do that. Or David could have gone to someone to complain who really couldn't do anything about it. I'm sure you never do that. I mean, I am guilty of that sometimes when I feel like I'm in danger under a threat. I just go to vent to the nearest person that I think will listen to me. David doesn't do any of that. He doesn't try to take revenge himself. He doesn't complain to somebody who can't, can't help. He goes to the Lord. He takes all of his horror, all of his grief to the ultimate judge. And it reminds me of something that Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Beloved, which that sounds familiar, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God, that literally means leave room for the wrath of God. So what happens too often is you and I, if we're, we're faced, especially with a personal threat or a personal danger that someone, a personal attack that someone is bringing us, we too often, we, we try to go tit for tat and we, we try to take revenge ourselves. Paul says, leave room for it. Don't, it, all we do is get in the way of God's judgment. And he says, leave room, get out of the way and let God take care of it. That's what David is doing here we, we never hear how things turn out for Doeg. So we don't, we don't know what the end of his story is, but we know from David's end of things that, that when we, like David, turn over to God, handling the situation, handling the threat, handling the danger, then we don't allow ourselves to be consumed with hate for what has been done or fear of what might be done in the future. We can just leave it and move on with our life. The second thing, the first thing that David does is he entrusts the evildoer to God's judgment. The second thing is to entrust yourself to God's love. That's how he ends this psalm in verses 8 and 9. David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever I will thank you forever, God, because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. David is trusting in God's steadfast love. Verse 8, steadfast love. That phrase, those two words translate one Hebrew word, which is the word kesed. And it's the same word that we saw back in verse 1. The steadfast love, the kesed of God endures all all the day. This is a really, really rich word. And I, I ran across this. I ran across this yesterday in my devotional time with the Lord. This is fun because I, I wasn't even studying for the message, but I was actually looking at Psalm 23, which we read earlier, and I wanted to understand what steadfast love meant more. So I found this, and I'll share it with you. This love is not merely an attitude or emotion. It is an emotion that leads to an activity beneficial to the recipient. It is in the context of a deep and enduring commitment between two parties by one who is able to render assistance to the needy party who in the circumstances is unable to help him or herself. I'll let you figure out which party in our relationship with God is the one that's able to render assistance and which is the needy party. I mean, this, this is God's love for, for us. And it's, it's in this context of an enduring commitment. It is God's commitment to us from which no, nothing can separate us. We read this verse earlier from Romans 8 during our worship time. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the kind of danger we face in this world. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, the chesed of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus himself, when he was facing enemies that he knew would put him to death, he grounded himself in the Father's love. So from John chapter 15, this is hours away from Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. He said to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide, remain, stay, dwell, lodge in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, even, if I can add, in the face of danger, even in the face of threat. God's, it is God's steady love that casts out our fear and gives us confidence to face moving forward even in the face of danger and fear. Over these last couple of weeks, God's been so gracious to allow me some space to spend more time with him and just reflect and journal. And, and one of the things that God really impressed on me was just the reminder that as I look back in my life and I see moments and times where I was fearful, I was I was like, I don't know, God, how I'm going to get through this situation. I don't know how you're going to bring me through. And I look back and I can, I can point out, you know, many of those kind of times when I was worried and fearful. And God reminded me, he brought me through every single one of those situations. And I can say that today because here I sit in front of you. I'm still here. And he brought me through those things. And so it was comforting to know. It's like, as he's brought me through all of those situations, he's going to be faithful again. There's no need to fear. There's no need to worry because the God who's been faithful in the past will continue to be faithful in the future. So what threat are you facing today? What danger are you facing? Maybe it's a personal attack. Maybe it's just a random circumstance. If we follow the example of David then we entrust that person or that situation into God's hands, and we let him handle that. And then we entrust ourselves into his love. And so here's, let me, let me just give you, the, the end of 52 says, uh, I will thank you forever because you've done it. So here's a very practical way for you to put this into practice of abiding in the love of Christ. At the end of your day, just, just have some little scrap paper by your, your bed or maybe a, a post-it note. And just, just write out five things, five evidences of God's love for you in that day. I, I've been doing that now for, for a little while. I've, I've repurposed a jar. We had a jar a number of months ago that Jeremy introduced to us. Um, and I've, I'm repurposing it for, for this now. But just to, to recall and to marinate and to go to sleep with that on my mind, to go to my time of rest at the end of the day, just celebrating God's tangible love in, in my life because it's his steady love for us that gives us confidence in the face of danger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your love for us that nothing can separate us from. 
Jesus, we thank you for choosing to come to this world and face danger. David didn't really choose his danger. He was appointed by you to be the next king, and that put a target on his back. But Jesus, you chose to leave your throne and to come and to face danger and threat and death out of your love for us so that nothing, not even death itself, would be able to separate us from your love. Lord, would you encourage the, the, the people in this room, each one of us, Lord, to marinate in and celebrate your steady love for us, and may that give us courage to press into the dangers, the real dangers of our world. And Lord, for, for that person who's here this morning who may not have any past experience, they, they maybe can't testify of how you have brought them through Uh, situations and danger in the past because they've not had a relationship with you. Lord, I pray today would be their day. Today would be their day to say, I don't want to face the danger in my life by myself anymore. Jesus, I want to ask you to come and and to to protect me, to to share this life with me, to, to pour your love into my life. Lord, I pray that they would make that decision today even as we celebrate your your love as we close here in Jesus' name, amen.